Derek Weeks has spent his entire career teaching, educating, and fostering relationships. From his first job with Atari teaching people how to use its consoles, to his role today as a vice president and DevOps advocate at Sonatype, Derek works to educate others. Derek joined IT Visionaries for conversations centered around the growth of the DevOps industry and how he is helping to grow that community through all-day DevOps, an online 24-hour conference featuring more than 100 speakers. Enjoy this episode. IT Visionaries is created by the team at mission.org and brought to you by the Salesforce Customer 360 platform, the number one cloud platform for digital transformation of every experience. Build connected experience, empower every employee, and deliver continuous innovation with the customer at the center of everything you do. Learn more at salesforce.com platform. This podcast is created by the team at mission.org. Welcome to another episode of IT Visionaries. I'm Ian Faison, host of IT Visionaries. And today we are joined by special guest, Derek. What's going on? Ian, really good to be here. Excited to talk to you. Yeah, exciting to talk to you as well. We don't talk a ton about DevOps, uh, or we haven't in a long time. So this will be fun to talk to you about that uh, and, uh, and obviously your background. So let's get into it. How did you get started in technology in the first place? Yeah, that's... Uh... It's a good question. I'm actually a Silicon kid. So I grew up in Silicon Valley uh, with Apple and uh, you know other companies just down the street from me growing up. So all of my classmates kind of had kids working in or, or parents that were working in the technology sector. And we saw all these companies around and you know, I did my uh, summer internships at Sun Microsystems for a number of years. Uh, my first job was actually with Atari, teaching people how to use personal computers. And uh, that all started actually in ninth grade. That was my first job with uh, with Atari, was teaching people how to use computers there. And it, it was always just a, a fascinating uh, market or environment for me. You know, growing up, my dad actually wasn't in technology or he was in microbiology, which uh, uses a lot of technology. But he always had this, you know, scientific curiosity uh, about him and asking questions of how things worked, why they worked, et cetera. So growing up in Silicon Valley as a kid, it's like, that's a computer. What's it do? How do you use it? You know, what can you do? And I remember, you know, running around the labs and HP and Olivetti and other places in the early days and playing, playing with things, banging on things over the weekend when uh, we were allowed to go into those offices with some of the kids' parents around, and it just stuck with me. Of, this is pretty cool. Let's hang out here for a while. And I uh, made a career of it. That's incredible. I've not heard someone who started out their career uh, in Atari uh, <laughs> doing it. In the ninth grade, you know? Hey, you know? It was you know, kind of funny. I, I showed up to school. It was like the first day of ninth grade. I saw one of, one of my friends I hadn't seen you know, over the summer, they said, hey, Scott, what are you doing? And he's like, oh, I'm working at Atari. I'm like, what are you doing there? He's like, well, these people are buying these personal computers for a couple thousand dollars and they have no clue how to use them. And I know how to use them. I'm like, I know how to use them. He's like, well, you can get a job there too. So I rode my bike down to Atari after school. And I'm like, hey, Scott has a job. Can I work here too? And they're like, yeah, you know how to use these things? So it was kind of funny because I'm in ninth grade and I'm teaching adults how to use personal computers at the time. It was uh, 
pretty, uh, I'm sure they were looking cross-eyed at me like, who's teaching me how to use this thing? I mean, it's, uh, it's probably, you know, similar, similar folks probably did the same thing with iPhones and, and probably will continue to do, we did it with radios, did it with TVs. I'm sure, uh, you know, the pace of innovation always brings that, uh, always brings the, the kids who are early adopters so they can teach their parents how to use it. I have looked, I have been looked at cross-eyed from my kids being like, dad, Hey, you know, this is my technology. I know how to use it. (laughs) You're old. Catch up. So flash forward to today. Tell me, tell me about what, uh, what you're working on, what it means to be a VP at Sonotype. Yeah. So Sonotype, I've been at Sonotype for seven years and it has been a super great journey along the way. And the journey that we've been on and kind of the blue ocean that we were approaching, you know, years ago is certainly still there and still feels new, but it feels a hundred times bigger than it did uh, when we started as a really small business uh, way back when. And, you know, it basically just feeds off of activity that's happening in the software development realm. So, you know, at Sonotype, we do a variety of things to help software developers build better quality code, build it faster, build it more reliably. And as part of that and what's happening today and what I saw seven years ago joining was there are a lot of developers, the vast majority of developers around the world are using open source components and packages to build the software applications that they're uh, responsible for. And one of the reasons why they're using so many open source components is they don't want to build code from scratch when they can download a package of code from the internet in a second for free that someone else with perhaps better expertise in that area has already built for them. Uh, And I remember that there were something like 13 million download requests of Java open source components from the Maven central repository that Sonotype happens to to manage uh, the year that I joined, which seemed like, oh my gosh, 13 million downloads of something? That's huge. There must be a massive interest in this kind of thing uh, around uh, around the world. Last year, 2019, there were 246 billion downloads of, of these components around the world. There are only nine or 10 million Java developers in the world. And if you look at the JavaScript realm in this, uh, in this area, there will be over a trillion downloads of JavaScript packages uh, this year. And while the consumption of these open source components is increasing dramatically because it's accelerating innovation and allowing businesses to deliver more value faster, what we do know is not all of these components are created equal. So in the realm of Java packages that people are downloading, 10% of those are known vulnerable from the start. In JavaScript, 40 to 50% of those trillion packages being downloaded uh, are either vulnerable or have vulnerable dependencies that, that come along with them. So it's really a matter of helping organizations understand, you know, what are the good parts that they're using? What are the bad parts that they're using? And helping them quickly understand when they're choosing to use a bad part that there are good alternatives. And and it really comes down to helping organizations manage their software supply chains. And so it's an exciting area when you see more and more open source being used and how much it accelerates innovation. 
But at the same time, we've seen a huge increase in cybersecurity risks, breaches that happen all over the place. You know, and years ago, certainly Equifax fell into this camp of they had the world's largest breach associated with uh, with an open source component uh, at the heart of it. You also are the founder of All Day DevOps Conference. How did that come about? Yeah, so that's a, it's a good question. Uh, it was about five years ago, the other co-founder, Mark Miller, for All Day DevOps and I were walking around a, a DevOps conference. This was probably the 20th, 25th conference that we had each attended around the industry that year. We speak at those conferences as well, and we meet other people who speak at conferences on a regular basis, and you kind of have this tribe of people that go from conferences to conferences, and you get to meet people there, you know, in the hallway tracks, effectively. So I'd run across three people from Intuit, two people from Lloyd's Banking Group, uh, you know, a person from Coca-Cola, and I'm talking to them about DevOps or DevSecOps and various practices or things that they've learned at the conference. And I'd always ask, well, you know, if you're here from Coca-Cola or Lloyd's Banking Group, how many other people are back at the office in your DevOps practice or your development team? And it would be, oh, hundreds, 3,000, 4,000, maybe more, you know, depending on the, the organization that they represented. And I knew that there was a lot of interest and activity in the DevOps market with the number of conferences, meetups, and so forth that were going on. And yet, not everyone had accessibility to the knowledge uh, sharing and transfer that was happening at these conferences. So I, I turned to Mark. We had worked together at previous roles as well, our previous companies, and said, I, I think it's time we could do an online conference for the DevOps industry, and I bet we could get 1,000 people to show up. And five years ago in the DevOps market, 1,000 people showing up to a conference would be the biggest DevOps conference uh, in the industry. So we reached out to a couple of other friends uh, in the industry, some guys uh, that, that still help us with the conference today, James, Karthik, Ernest, uh, Shannon, and we said, let's put together a conference online. We'll run it for 15 hours across 15 time zones. We'll have 57 speakers. And we announced that we wanted to do this and we needed speakers and 300 people signed up uh, for this conference that we didn't even have speakers for. But they were like, that sounds like a cool idea. We ended up having 13,000 people attend the conference 90 days later when we uh, ran it the first year. And uh, since then, it's, it's grown to what has been the largest virtual conference in the IT industry. In 2019, we ran the, uh, our annual conference in November, uh, and we had nearly 40,000 people participate in that conference. It runs 24 hours. We have 150 speakers. And that's really been a joy to see take off and, you know, people just have, uh, you know, immense pleasure participating in because I think they, they learn a ton from the, the conference and the experience. Yeah. And it really speaks to the rise of DevOps as an important critical piece of whether it's your IT infrastructure, or your IT team, or whether it's, you know, your technology team or wherever you, you park it in your company. I'm curious, like yeah. what, what's, what's the state of, of, of DevOps right now? Well, I think, 
you know, DevOps is certainly reaching a greater maturity than it had 10 years ago when it started. And, and I think some of that is if you look up DevOps conferences or meetups prior to the, the pandemic that we're all facing, there were conferences and meetups, multiple conferences and meetups uh, a week with people trying to learn more about it, what it was, how it works, what best practices are, et cetera. I think you know, we've seen in the last number of years, a lot of people adding DevOps to their titles to be a DevOps engineer, even if they aren't really doing DevOps. But I think you know, there are some organizations that have really strong DevOps practices and DevOps cultures, and they are benefiting dramatically from those in terms of the ability for people to work together, for people to have fun and enjoy the, the work that they're doing, for them to meet customer demands faster than the organization has ever been before, for them to be more competitive in the industry than ever before. But I still see that there's a lot of misunderstanding of what DevOps is and is not, especially for the people that are just getting into it and wanting to use it as, as a buzz, buzzword. And I think the biggest misconception in DevOps that people have is people really talk about or try and understand DevOps as increased velocity of development. And while that is a attribute of what happens when you have good practices, it is not really the thing that you're striving to achieve. And that is, it's, it's not just about velocity or automation. It's actually more about feedback loops in terms of doing things quickly. And if you develop a small bit of code and you can deploy that or, or build it, test it, deploy it into production, you can get very quick feedback loop to say that little bit is working or not working. And the feedback loop when it's not working says, send it back to be fixed and correct it and get it back again. And that way you can do these multiple iterations with continuous feedback loops through that, that effort. And a lot of those feedback loops and information and monitoring and observing what's happening in the environment critical to achieving a DevOps practice. But it's really also this culture of how people work together, a culture of trust, a culture of safety, a culture of open communication, a culture of we can all sit at the same table and get work done and collaborate uh, with one another um, versus throwing things over the wall to a different silo within the, the organization. So I think, it, you know, you can't mistake it for just automation, but you have to consider the mindset, the cultural shift that happens within organizations and the, the collaboration that happens uh, as a result. But I was just talking with some of my friends earlier and <laughs> my kids have gotten me into TikTok which is, uh, you know, a, a fun distraction uh, sometimes. But I, I search on TikTok, like, what are people talking about with DevOps on TikTok, uh, if they are talking about it at all on TikTok? And a lot of that, that perception out there from the few posts that were there were, hey, DevOps is just about moving things faster and doing faster software development. And I was... Uh, kind enough to maybe respond back or reply back to some of those people saying, hey, it's a little broader than what you're defining it as, but it's a journey where we all learn and it's worth going out there and finding the, the great content that's out there and the great people out there to help you learn. Yeah, and so 
what does what do those like those DevOps leaders where are they headed within organizations? Like, are they is their route to be you know uh, a CTO, a CIO? Like, how do they kind of build those skill sets and that kind of career pathing? Yeah, I, I think like most management positions or executive positions, it's not so much wondering about what is the task that needs done or what is the tactic that needs uh, run or accomplished. It's really taking a more holistic view uh, of the business. So it's not just can things move from development into production as quickly as possible and are we monitoring the speed of that, the quality of that, the performance of that uh, overall, but it, it plays into what is the business trying to achieve and can we achieve that faster and what, you know, how competitive are we in the market and doing so? Can we deliver value faster than uh, our competitors and, and our peers? Can we meet our customer requirements faster? Can we be more profitable as a business in doing that? And I think it's really taking the things that DevOps practices offer and working with those in the organization and across the people in the organization to really give them a vision and manage toward that vision of what can we achieve and how do we want to perform uh, as an overall business to kind of leave, leave our legacy in this place. And I think that's really the, that more holistic view of what is the business and its people trying to achieve and how do you assemble the right teams create the right culture or influence the culture and influence the practices sufficiently to get there. And I think that's what the, the leaders in the organization are trying to uh, achieve. And you know, I think those that are doing that, that are growing their businesses are also looking at, at, at it as a advantage when it gets to hiring the right people with the right skill sets. When you're doing awesome things using awesome new technologies and you have a culture that thrives and people are happy, they have the tools that they need to get their work done, you know, et cetera, you're going to have an easier time recruiting, uh, certainly in a market that is very competitive. So moving on to security and DevSecOps, you know, open source breaches uh, have been on a decline, but what are some of the trends in the security space that you're seeing? A couple of things uh, in terms of trends. One is when we talk about application security specifically, five years ago when I was talking to people about application security, we were talking to people in the roles of application security. They lived on the security team. They had security in their title somewhere. They were, you know, they lived in that silo of the, the organization. And they often did not talk to software developers. Uh, even though they were application security, they were finding problems in applications, identifying vulnerable code uh, or vulnerabilities in, in the applications. And once they did that, then they would kind of throw it over the wall back to development and say, hey, we need to, you know, we need something corrected here. We don't know what it is, or we don't know how to fix it per se, that's your job. But it was kind of a throw it over the wall exercise. I, I think today, Certainly for the leading environment, it's much more of organizations that take a um, dev-centric or dev-first view of security when it comes to applications. So 
It's what do I know about the code that I am developing or code packages and components that I'm putting into my application that might have vulnerabilities? And do my development tools tell me about that? So if I'm using an Eclipse IDE or GitHub or a Jenkins continuous delivery uh, server, can I, can I be informed by those tools that I have security issues that need to be remediated that are quickly telling me there are issues, here's a path to remediating those issues and I can fix them without a security team ever seeing them and, and being involved. You know, I was sitting in a, in a or delivering a presentation in a uh, application development uh, meetup a couple of months ago. And one of the audience members said, hey, I just got a notification from GitHub on my pull request that there's a known vulnerability uh, in the code that I just submitted. And now I have to go and fix it. And so here's a developer using a developer tool that's getting security information from his development tool environment, or, and it may be a security tool that he had integrated with GitHub, but that was very development centric. He didn't need a security team to review. He, was an, you know, he didn't even need to commit or integrate his code with other developers to get that feedback. And he was able to remediate it quickly. And I think that is going toward making a lot of moves to more quickly improve the quality of code that, that is being built. So I think that's one of the, the big things that, uh, that has changed in the last number of years. You, know, you mentioned that there's been a decrease in open source related attacks. And I had previously mentioned Equifax, which, you know, that was a major breach, but there were, you know, seven other companies and organizations that had the same strut related breach Equifax had. They were just the ones that they made, that made the news, uh, the biggest news with, with their breach. But, you know, even in our annual survey, we've run for seven years. Uh, This year, 21% of developers say they've had an open source related breach in the last 12 months. One in five organizations having a known breach in the last 12 months is significant. So even if that's going down from where it was 31%, that's still a big concern. And I think that the other thing is, you know, we've talked a lot about the pace of development, but the other thing, the trend that we're seeing is the pace of adversary attacks. A decade ago, you know, there was an IBM uh, study that said the time between a vulnerability being discovered and exploited in the wild was 45 days. So if you had the vulnerability that was discovered in your applications, you had 45 days to race to remediate that risk before exploits were developed and adversaries could get at it. At the beginning of May this year, um, to show you how much times have changed, SaltStack, an open source project, had a known vulnerability discovered in its code earlier in the year. On April 29th, they released a notification to say, we have a vulnerability in our application. We have today released a safe version of that application with the vulnerabilities fixed. These are a super easy to exploit. So we recommend everyone update their application as quickly as possible. That was on a Wednesday afternoon. By Saturday, there were 15 breaches in the news or in GitHub discussion groups where people were said, I've lost control of my systems. I have an exploit that's happening right now. We've had code executing on our 
systems that is not supposed to be executing. Uh, and by Sunday, there, there were five more. So there were 20 breaches that made, you know, that I was able to see within four days of that vulnerability being announced. So the speed of adversaries saying, I've heard about this, this vulnerability, I can see the exploit, and I'm going to go and attack it and take over the, the servers, which is what they were doing, is much faster. So if you think it went from 45 days to three days, you have to think as, a, as an organization, when we hear of a new vulnerability, how long does it take us to hear about it? How long does it take us to fix that vulnerability? And you could say, oh, it used to take us three months and now it only takes us a month. Well, if your adversaries are operating in a three-day pace, you're 27 days behind. And I think that's part of the scary thing that you have to kind of be aware of is um, speed of security and DevSecOps can be an internal metric or measure how fast are we at remediating vulnerabilities. But if you don't look at your external you know, benchmarks in terms of what the adversaries are doing, it kind of doesn't matter what your internal benchmarks are. Yeah, what are some best practices that you've seen, whether it's folks, you know, using Sonatype or, or others um, for ways to mitigate that? Yeah, so um, certainly with Sonatype, part of what we do you know, with companies, we help them understand what open source components are you using where? And if there are bad ones, you know, are there good ones available that you can uh, work with? And so in the case of a new vulnerability coming out, we're getting that information to our customers as quickly as possible. And, and I remember back in 2017 around the struts vulnerability that impacted Equifax, we had organized, you know, in terms of what, what we've seen with open source related use within our customers when a vulnerability uh, comes out. You know, in the case of Equifax, that vulnerability came out in March of 2017. Equifax discovered that they were breached through this uh, vulnerable component in late July, I believe. So it took them a number of months to even recognize that there was a problem that they then had to respond to. And you know, at other customers that, that we had uh, at the time, those customers said, yep, we knew about the vulnerability. You alerted us about the vulnerability the same day that the vulnerability came out. We saw that we had systems in place that had vulnerable versions of that code. We took them offline. We sent those, those pieces of code or applications back to development. Uh, our DevOps practice says that we can take new code and roll it out into production within two days. Uh, we followed our standard practices. Within two days, we had those, those systems uh, updated with new code and back online in production. Uh, other companies said, yeah, we saw the vulnerable code. We couldn't update it because those development teams don't exist on that legacy application uh, anymore. It wasn't that critical of a system, so we just pulled it offline permanently. And they were able to avoid exploit in the wild by knowing exactly uh, what was there. So I think you know, there are organizations that are getting faster at responding. At the same time, their adversaries are getting faster at responding. So I think that's, you know, that's certainly a practice that's taking place more and more. I think the other thing, you know, the other thing that always excites me when I hear about it in, in terms of security practices and development teams is the red teaming efforts that are going on around different businesses. And that's, you know, there's some great work going on at Intuit with the red teams where they have 
security pros sitting right next to their developers and attacking their code continuously because a company like Intuit that holds so much sensitive financial information for their clients that, that knows that nation states are trying to attack it continuously. They are being attacked every single day of the year, probably every single minute of the year. And they know if they don't attack themselves and use the most sophisticated approaches to attack themselves and the most sophisticated tools to attack themselves and really find where the vulnerabilities are in their code, they know their adversaries will. So the, these kind of practices to build you know, security testing and, and red teaming you know, internally that says, we'd rather invest in doing this and knowing where our vulnerabilities are and having security people partner with developers to prevent those vulnerabilities from getting out into production to keep our systems even safer. And I, you know, it's not just Intuit doing that, but the, they were certainly one of the leaders early on in, in doing that. You know, we've uh, we've had some folks from government agencies on here uh, in the past. Uh, you know, how does this change for for government agencies? Yeah, you know, it's a it's a good question. I was just speaking uh, a couple of weeks ago with Ron Ross. He is a fellow at the National Institute of uh, Standards and Technology uh, w- within the government, and uh, NIST. If, if you don't know or follow what they're doing, they develop the secure software development framework telling organizations or guiding organizations to these are really good practices for how to integrate security into your culture, your applications, your infrastructure, software supply chains, uh, and you know, guiding them toward, hey, things have really changed. Software is being developed a lot faster. There are more parties involved, certainly with third-party uh, open source components being involved in building applications that we need to be aware of. Uh, we need to keep track of what those components are in applications, uh, et cetera. And because our adversaries out there are you know, are, are moving quickly. So there's a lot of great work happening uh, in places like NIST. There are also, you know, there's a great amount of work happening uh, across different government agencies, whether it's the, the Navy, the Air Force, Nick Shalon at the Air Force, who's the, the chief software officer, is doing some great work and really leading DevSecOps practices and culture across the organization and innovating fast. And I think that, you know, a lot of us think of government as really behind, uh, you know, and if, if industry is doing it, then government's a decade behind that. And I think there are people like Nick Shalon that are really approaching DevSecOps on the leading edge of things. And I think even teaching uh, enterprise how to do it. I think there are other things happening in the realm of, uh, NTIA, uh, that's part of the Department of Commerce, I believe, working with the Food and Drug Administration, for instance, they know, you know, software development has changed. They know software development has changed from the number of open source components that are being used in development. And um, they were working together with the FDA to say, hey, we need a bill of materials for every bit of software in medical devices that is being shipped out to consumers and knowing if there are good components, if there are bad components, we need a list of ingredients of those components. If any of those go bad over time, then they need to be remediated quickly or else people's health is at risk. 
Uh, and I, I remember it probably three years ago, there was a note that went out to say, hey, there's a software vulnerability in this brand of pacemakers. And if you don't fix this problem, uh, if you have this brand of pacemaker, you need to see your doctor immediately to get an update of the software uh, in that pacemaker or your health is at risk. Uh, and just thinking of my friend who has a pacemaker, you know, like, what if you got that notice? How quickly do you need to get to your doctor and update that? But you know, just having more awareness in terms of how software is built, how vulnerabilities are appearing in it, how fast adversaries are at exploiting that, how fast we are at, at being able to update those things. You know, government is doing a lot to set guidelines and set policy and establish frameworks for how things work in the new realm of software development. And so there, you know, there's certainly a lot more work to do but there's certainly evidence of really good work happening that's happened for years. And, and it has visibility at all levels nationally, whether that's you know, the FDA, the White House, US Congress, I know has uh, considered legislation, and also national governments. You know, Germany, France, the UK, uh, and Australia have all passed national you know, legislation or policies around cybersecurity. Uh, and improving that, and, and especially tied to how software is being built. Yeah. Can you speak a little bit more about the supply chain stuff? Because that was something that I was I was really curious about, you know, how DevOps and supply chain are so linked. And obviously, it's one of one of the things that uh, is one of your specialties. So the, the software supply chain, so I, I write something and started writing something six years ago called the State of the Software Supply Chain Report. So we're, we're now in our sixth year of writing it. I'm actually, earlier today, I was uh, filling in more of the, the chapters within, within the latest report. And so software supply chains, you, you really have to think about it just as a normal supply chain in any other manufacturing industry has, you have suppliers. You have warehouses uh, of parts. You have factories that are demanding those parts and they're putting those parts into products and shipping them to uh, end users or consumers. Well, in software development, this works the same way. Think of an open source package uh, or a container, a Docker container that is being created by someone or a group of people. They are a supplier. They then take that part and put it up in a public warehouse. Uh, and that public warehouse could be Maven Central for Java components and the NPM repository for JavaScript components, Docker Hub for Docker containers, et cetera. And like I said earlier, you know, there's going to be a trillion downloads of just JavaScript components this year from those warehouses by development teams. They're putting these components into applications uh, that are uh, then used by consumers out there. And, you know, in my study, I've looked at tens of thousands of applications that are using open source components. Generally, 80 to 90% of any application being built today, and in some industries like financial services, 95% or more of the application itself is built from this prepackaged code. So this is code that you've electively chosen not to develop yourself. But an organization you know, might have a couple hundred components uh, on average in their applications. They rely in general, an enterprise relies on about 2,500 to 3,500 different open source projects uh, a year that are basically external suppliers of software code 
that you've chosen electively not to write uh, yourself. But as you're sourcing these things, just as you would in any other supply chain, you have to ask yourself, who are the best suppliers out there? What are the highest quality parts out there? And how do we procure those and put those into our applications? So from a DevOps perspective, remember I said DevOps was about feedback loops. So feedback loops are, I've selected an open source component. I need feedback right away that tells me, is this good or is this bad? If it's bad, let me take corrective action quickly by identifying what are the good versions of that available. Now I put that into my application. I send it to our continuous integration platform. It's merged with other code from other developers. Is any of their code bad? Do, are any of them using bad components? Uh, if they are, what are the quick feedback loops that help us remediate those? When it goes into production, it may be, hey, everything was good when we shipped it. Uh, now it's in production. Like SaltStack, a new vulnerability was just discovered. You know, one, do we know what we used and where it is? Uh, so if we're using a vulnerable version of SaltStack or a vulnerable struts component or JSON component, what have you, we know exactly, hey, that JSON component is in six applications in production. It's now vulnerable. How quickly can we identify that and remediate that uh, and use the feedback loops and quick ability to identify the, the problems and quick ability to roll out new capabilities uh, or new updates to that software in production to make sure we're not exploited. So there's this kind of idea of the software supply chains like physical manufacturing supply chains coupled with fast feedback loops and development and DevOps, DevSecOps practices that tie these together. But I think by looking at it as a supply chain and software supply chain, it's easier to imagine the flow of these components, the suppliers, and then being able to study, you know, who are the best and, and worst suppliers out there? Who are the, what are the best parts out there? And that's a lot of the work that I've done over the, the uh, years that I've been writing the state of the software supply chain report. In the past couple of years, I've been lucky enough to partner with Gene Kim uh, and Dr. Stephen McGill on some of that research where we've identified exemplary uh, or exemplar open source projects, the best suppliers out there. Uh, and this year we're focusing on exemplars in terms of the best developers out there or the best practices within enterprises in terms of enterprise development. Okay, let's get into our lightning round. These questions are fast and easy, just like the Salesforce Customer 360 platform, number one cloud platform for digital transformation of every experience. You can go to salesforce.com slash platform to learn more. We love Salesforce platform. They've been with us since the very beginning of this show. So check them out, salesforce.com slash platform. Lightning round questions. Derek, are you ready? I am totally ready. Number one, what hobby or habit have you picked up during Shelter in Place? Uh, I bought a smoker. So I'm a proud owner of a Yoder smoker and I'm smoking briskets and ribs and all of that. My kids are loving it. I was going to ask you that as one of my questions. How did your first foray into brisket go? Uh, you know, we just cooked the first brisket. Uh, uh, July 3rd, we had friends over because you can't, a family of four cannot eat a full brisket. You need to have a lot of friends around. And uh, it was very tasty and juicy and uh, everyone went back for third. So I think that's, uh, the reviews were positive. Do you have a hidden talent or passion? 
hidden talent or passion. Uh, wine collecting is always a, a, a fun passion of mine on the on the side, and also uh, doodling and art is also you know something fun that I uh, kept up with all my life. Is there a a speaker or a session or something that's coming up in all day DevOps that you're particularly that everybody needs to know about? Uh, you know, we haven't announced the speakers for this year, so it might be uh, a little too early for that. But I, I will say, out of the you know all of the sessions from All Day DevOps in the previous four years that we've done it, five hundred plus sessions are out there, recorded online, available to to everyone. Um, there are two exceptional presentations from last year. The guys from Adidas um, that talk about their kind of DevOps. Uh, DevOps Cup internally was this competition that they ran with different teams competing against you know each other with different DevOps practices or innovations that they were bringing that I thought was a really cool story. And also the guys from State Farm did this great presentation on transforming a 97-year-old organization into a high-velocity, new, lean kind of uh, software development uh, practice. And They've had tremendous success there. So I, I really love hearing how people you know, overcome a lot in kind of older, traditional, maybe what's seen as stodgy from the outside organization, but are really racing to transform internally. Anything that you've been uh, binge listening to or watching on the podcast, TV, or book front? Ooh, gosh, there's... Uh, there's so much that I listen to on a daily basis. What, uh, what stands out in terms of a podcast? There was, um, I'm going to forget the name of this podcast, but there was a super interesting story that I remember listening to about how Facebook was using all of our data and Facebook and Google and, and others, but just the access to the data that they have and how the access to that data influences what they know about everyone and how it creates filter bubbles that we all live within. So if I like dogs and barbecue, uh, you know, that's all I'm seeing. And I think everyone else in the world is talking about these things and loving these things. Uh, and the more you get into like, hey, I like today, I like wine, you know, within a week, you can be completely immersed in those environments because they're making that happen. But it was fascinating to kind of learn about these filter bubbles that are all created in our new online virtual environments because of the things that we like and follow uh, and so forth and how that kind of manipulates our behavior and understanding of things. But if you own all the data like Facebook, they understand everything. They see the big picture and know, you know what, what's going on overall. So I just imagine that there are things like uh, the 2020 election, they know what the votes are going to be ahead of, you know, any polling out there because, well, if you like Trump, you're only seeing Trump things. And if you like Biden, you're only seeing Biden things. They know how many people are following each and have a pretty good indication of the global scale of interest in, uh, in those topics from different people. So it's fascinating stuff. Yeah, it is really fascinating stuff. And I would add that what's so fascinating about it is that like, you know, when you get given somebody else's phone and all their apps are like all in a different place and you're like, why do you like, this is really weird. I, I would be so curious to see like, if we looked at our friends feeds um, or our family's feeds, like what they're getting served constantly, but it is 
I think the intersection of like how people are sharing that content on like messaging apps or I mean, you know, Facebook owns WhatsApp. So, um, you know, that's another thing for them, but on all of the the messaging apps, because I think it's so funny. That's like, that's how you get your input of new content, right? It's not from the algorithm sourcing you new things because that's reinforcing the stuff that you already have. It's people sharing other things into into that, which is really, really fascinating. Yeah. So it was, I just looked it up. It's the Making Sense uh, podcast with Sam Harris that covered that topic. So if any of your listeners are looking for that, uh, that interview, definitely worth, uh, worth diving into. Yeah, that's great. Great recommendation. Um, what would be your best advice for someone who's a DevOps leader? Yeah, you know, there, there's a book, Mark Schwartz uh, speaks a lot in the DevOps industry, and he's written a number of books, uh, one of which is called A Seat at the Table. Uh, and, and I think the key thing that I keep coming to in, in a lot of conversations, and it, if you're a DevOps leader, you probably already know this, but but for everyone else out there striving to be a, a better leader, it, it's the seat at the table to me really says, if you're going to make DevOps happen and be success, successful as a culture, you need to sit and talk with people. Get that seat at the table or be at the table. And I think a lot of what doesn't happen or frustrations in organizations or obstacles people face is that they don't just sit down and talk to one another. They kind of observe things that are going on or they're messaging people back and forth. And there's so much more that can be accomplished when you just pick up the phone and call someone um, that can solve a lot of issues, that can accelerate the changes and things that you're doing uh, more quickly and get to people on this, the same page. So I always think of that, you know, get, get a seat at the table when part of that, is, especially in this world when we can't all be around the same table physically is pick up the phone and talk to someone because you'll probably make a hundred times more headway than you would messaging them on Slack or sending email or, you know, trying to interpret what's happening uh, from afar. What question do you never get asked that you wish you were asked more often? What should I not work on? I think that's a really good question. People are very eager to start working on stuff, but they're not always willing to stop working on things. And so I constantly assess, is there something that I am doing that I just shouldn't be doing because it, you know you don't have the time to do everything. So what should I stop working on? Great advice. And I'll tell you the one thing you should not stop working on is that brisket recipe because I'm going to need some burn ends uh, because <laughs> that is definitely when I see you next, um, the expectation uh it has been met now. Uh, yeah. Yeah. It's, uh, it took 15 hours to cook that brisket. And if something's going to take 15 hours, it better taste good coming off of the end. So it's really, that's definitely something I will strive to improve because if you're going to put that much time and investment and money into buying the brisket, then it's worth having it pay off. A wise person once said, always improve your foxhole. And uh, I feel like that's, it's never been more uh, true with, with brisket. Always areas <laughs> to improve. Awesome. Derek, thanks so much for joining. This was great. Uh, really, really insightful stuff. Everyone, if you're into DevOps, check out All Day DevOps and, uh, and obviously check out Sonotype. Any final thoughts? Anything to plug? 
Yeah, our next uh, all-day DevOps, because you mentioned it, it's November 12th. We run 24 hours. We will have over 150 speakers be there. I do stay up all 24 hours. Uh, it is free, so you and the rest of your organization can attend. We have companies that have hundreds of people that uh, register to all watch and participate together. And there are no vendor pitches uh, allowed at the conference. So you're not going to log in and hear a bunch of people talking about their products that they want to sell you. It's just practitioners, thought leaders delivering super stuff. So November 12th, 24 hours, we kick off at 3 a.m. Eastern time. Awesome. Thanks, Eric. Take care. Thanks, Ian. IT Visionaries is created by the team at mission.org and brought to you by the Salesforce Customer 360 platform, the number one cloud platform for digital transformation of every experience. Build connected experience, empower every employee, and deliver continuous innovation with the customer at the center of everything you do. Learn more at salesforce.com slash platform. <laughs>